sure Zechariah is, two books back from Matthew. Two books back from Matthew. The largest of the minor prophets, Zechariah. And this morning, we will begin the third and final section of the book of Zechariah. If you recount our study thus far, we've looked at the first section, Zechariah's eight night visions, given in one night primarily to encourage the people to renew their rebuilding of the temple. If you remember, Israel has returned from Babylon, a meager 50,000 strong. They began to build the temple, and then they quit once opposition arose. And God calls them to repentance. God spurs them on. He tells them his plans for them, his plans to defend them, his plans to destroy and discipline their enemies. The people respond in faith. Then we jump ahead two or three years to the second section, chapters 7 and 8. As you recall, the Israelites had a custom of fasting at certain points of the year in commemoration of the destruction of the original temple, the sacking of Jerusalem, the assassination of Jedidiah. And they come and ask the Lord, do we need to keep this up? And the Lord gives a fourfold response, which makes it clear that somehow the Israelites were thinking they were getting spiritual cred or currency for these fasts. And God challenges them that they weren't really doing these observances for him in the first place, and they'd never really got around to doing what he wanted them to do, which was to obey. And now, in this final section, we are going to get the most apocalyptic, large viewing of history in the book. This is easily the most challenging, the most grand, the most exciting section of the book. One of the things that's great about it is the Lord Jesus, who's been in this book so far, we've seen him, the angel of the Lord, speaking to Yahweh on behalf of Israel. But he's going to come front and center in these final chapters. Um, If you just look at chapter 9, what we'll look at next week, look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? And Zechariah is going to look at the coming of the Messiah. He's going to look at his rejection, his death. And then he's, he's going to look at his second coming in glory to defend Israel. We're going to look at the Battle of Armageddon. We're going to look at the institution of the Millennial Kingdom in chapter 14. Jump, jump over to chapter 14. Just, just a, a foretaste of where we're going to be in coming weeks. And all the nations gather around Jerusalem. Let's pick it up in 14.1. A day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, that when the Lord returns, touchdown point for the risen Lord will be the Mount of Olives, and he will defend his people. Jump down to verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow up from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western, and it shall continue as in summer and in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. So that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to look at. 
And so what we're getting in this final section is sort of a bird's eye view of all of the rest of earthly history. And so it's going to be exciting. The section itself is divided into two subsections. If you look at 9 verse 1, you get an introduction to the first prophecy or oracle. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. Some of your translations might say oracle. Look at 12.1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So two burdens, two oracles break up these chapters. We don't know, unlike the other sections, what the date is. If you remember, in in the first address, we get a clear date in chapter 1 where Zechariah tells us that he's writing in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And then the second section begins in chapter 7 in the fourth year of King Darius. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month. No such date starts chapter 9, but as best as we can tell, and in Jewish tradition, and even just from changes in the vocabulary style, this is later, very likely towards the end of Zechariah's life. The temple is complete, or at least the second temple has been built. The rebuilding is done, successful. And now, at some later date, Zechariah brings this prophecy to his people about the coming Messiah and what he will do. And so now we're going to dive into the conquering king returns. And really the first eight verses are a setup, a preparation, an announcement of the return of God to his people that's rejoicingly announced in verse 9 that we'll look at next week. The conquering king returns. Now if you remember Israel, it's situated near the Mediterranean. And we're going to see in this text God coming down, wiping out their enemies, starting up north and then coming down protecting Jerusalem. The, the, the judgment that was promised in chapter 1 is now going to be spelled out in remarkable specificity. So let's read the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place, for the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath, which Borders also borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud of the streets. But before the Lord will strip her, but behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It, too, shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march and to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Now this text is broken, I think, into four sections. The first is the announcement of the oracle itself in verse 1. Then we're to look at judgment to the north, and then judgment to the south, 
And finally, the Lord's protection. So let's look at verse 1, the burden, that's your blank, the burden of the Lord. This is an unusual um, title for a prophetic revelation, and as best as we can tell, it basically means a divine revelation generally associated with judgment of some sort, calamity. And we see that in both of these, in both of these, destruction and judgment, I mean, in the second burden of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon is front and center. And in here, God is announcing judgment on, on his enemies, the enemies of his people. Now, there's much more in here as well, but that's, that's what's meant by this burden, this oracle of the Lord, um, a divine revelation associated with judgment. What we're going to see is it announces the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, which is up in, it's up in Assyria, beginning in Assyria, and it's going to finally rest in Damascus. And so that gives us the movement of this judgment. It's going to start up in lower Assyria, up on the north of the Mediterranean coast, up above by Phoenicia, and then it's going to move down. Now, you're probably not familiar with the ten names that show up here, but for anyone living in, in Jerusalem, they, they know where they were, and there's a clear progression as the cities get named heading southward down to Jerusalem. And so that's the movement. It begins in Hadrach and then heads down south and ultimately rests in and around Damascus. And another thing that's, that's clear here, and the ESV, I don't like its reading. I like the footnote it gives. If you see the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, my ESV gives a footnote, and I think other translations render it. For the Lord, um, for the eyes of men are upon the Lord, especially the tribes of Israel, which I think is the right reading. It, it forms a, a sort of an envelope, an ellipsis, because here in verse 1, the eyes of man, especially Israel, are on the Lord. And then verse 8 ends with God seeing. So first, all eyes are on God. And what he's doing, we see that again in verse 5, as the Philistines see what God's doing, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. So the first section is man looking, beholding, seeing the judgment of God. And it ends with God in Jerusalem looking over his people. And that's, that's sort of the flow here. And the point is this, what God is announcing he's going to do, he is going to do plainly. He's going to do openly. And that's the point C, done openly in the sight of all men. God intends with this judgment to make a name for himself. He intends to bring glory to himself. He intends it to be seen and understood and to affect other people. There's going to be ripple effects to judgment. Just like he intended to make a name for himself with Pharaoh, and the destruction of Pharaoh at the Exodus was so great that when the spies went in to spy out Jericho, the Canaanites had already heard and were trembling, if you remember. And that's where to look at God's purpose in judgment as the king returns. The conquering king is returning to his people. It was announced earlier in the book, and now here it comes. God is returning to his people. There's one other aspect of this prophecy, and really this whole section, that can be somewhat problematic, and that is it's clear from reading Zechariah and from many of the Old Testament prophets that they viewed the two comings of the Messiah as a single event. And... and and that's because in one sense, it is a single event. What, what God tells his people is your Messiah is coming, and if you'll respond rightly, if you'll receive him, if you'll laud him, if you will honor him, if you will believe in him, then here's what he will do. And so the Christ comes. Except that's not how Israel responds, is it? And as we read in Romans 10 and 11, because of Israel's stumbling, the gospel went to the Gentiles. Remember. 
So, so Zechariah is looking at the things the Messiah is going to do. The Messiah is going to come. Look in verse 9. We know verse 9 is fulfilled in what is referred to as the triumphal entry. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So we know that happened 2,000 years ago. Now read the very next verse. And I will cut off the chariot from a frame and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Now, that won't occur until Christ is ruling on earth in the millennium. And so there's at least a 2,000-year gap between the events of verse 9 and the events of verse 10, and that can be confusing. And one of the challenges as we read these prophecies, we're trying to figure out what that's being predicted has already occurred and what that's being predicted has yet to occur. Even in our eight verses, much of what is described here has taken place, and yet it's clear that there's much still remaining to take place. But from Zechariah's viewpoint, it's kind of like two hills on the horizon that you see. You look at the horizon, you just see one hill, and as you get up higher in a helicopter, you can see the valley in between. This, this time of the church, Paul says, was a mystery, not revealed to the former prophets, that because Israel rejected their Messiah, the gospel has now gone to the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. That will provoke Israel to jealousy. God will pour out his spirit, as it says in Zechariah 12, and Israel will have a national conversion. And then these events will pick up. But that's just one of the difficulties, is he's going to speak with Messiah, and yet He's going to speak of some things Christ has done, and he's going to think, speak of things that Christ will do. And it's clear that Zechariah isn't seeing a massive 2,000-year gap between these events. But I think that sort of explains why, because it is a legitimate offer. God legitimately is saying, I'll send you your, your Messiah. I'll send my son. And if you, will, if you will respond properly, here's what he will do. So that's the burden of the word of the Lord. And now I'm going to start with the judgment of the Lord, verses two to four. Judgment. And what centers prominently here and gets the most attention is Tyre. The burden is on Hamath, which is another town up um, north in southern Syria. And Tyre and Sidon, though, they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. For behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Now these are names that probably we're not super familiar with, but anyone living in Zechariah's day would be very familiar with these names, especially Tyre. Tyre was the undefeatable city, the unseigeable city. Tyre was a city built on an island about half a mile off the coast, it had 100-foot double walls. It was impregnable, or so it was thought. Tyre had safely um, lived out the siege of Shalmaneser, the, uh, the Assyrian king. Um, the, sorry, the, no, the Assyrian king. Over five years, no problem. Because they're an island, because they have such a mighty fleet, you couldn't really siege them. They could just keep getting resupplied by boats. You couldn't take them. Nebuchadnezzar spent 13 years sieging Tyre, and failed. I mean, here's, here's, this, here's the city that dwelled securely through two world regimes, both of which trying to take it out, both of which trying to knock it down, unable to. And yet God declares here they're going down. 
You can see why there'd be so much wealth in a city like Tyre. When you're that secure, where are people going to send their goods? Where do they want them held up? In the secure city. So Tyre had the strongest fleet. It was a leading Phoenician city. And it was supposed to be impregnable. I mean, it would be the equivalent today of, of God saying that NORAD was going to fall. If you're familiar with NORAD, it's, it's a military base built under and in a mountain. Uh, meant to withstand a direct nuclear assault. This is, this is massive, these predictions. Um, elsewhere in Ezekiel, God's already spelled out their downfall. Listen to Ezekiel 26, verses 3 to 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you. As the sea brings up its waves, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. And I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she'll be, she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God's fulfillment of this prophecy is remarkable. Like I've said, this is the city that survived direct assault by Shalmaneser and by Nebuchadnezzar, no problem. And yet, some years after Zechariah makes this prophecy, in, in 332 and 333 BC, a Greek by the name of Alexander wiped it out in seven months. You may not be familiar with Alexander the Great's conquest, but after defeating Darius III in battle, um, in the Battle of Issus in November of 333 BC, Alexander marched his army, and Alexander was such a smart tactician that before he went up north to take on the rest of the Assyrians, he went south along the Mediterranean coast, wiping out their seaports to destroy their naval power. And so Alexander starts going down the, the Phoenician coastline, wiping out city after city after city in the exact pattern, the exact progression laid out here in our verses. And history reports that when he got near to Tyre, the Tyrians sent an envoy trying to sue for peace with him, and he wanted access to the city. It was a ploy. He said he wanted to worship their god, offer a sacrifice, but the Tyrians knew he just wanted access into their impenetrable stronghold. So they said no. So then Alexander sent some envoys to sue for peace again, calling for their surrender. The Tyrians killed his men and threw them over the walls into the river. And Alexander was so enraged by that that he built a land bridge out to Tyre and demolished it. Ezekiel's prediction that it would be a place of drying nets. Listen to this again. In Ezekiel, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, break down her towers, I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. God's word predicted it, and it happened with great specificity. Tyre went down. Tyre went down. And here, decades before this happening, before Greece is a world player on the, on the world scene, God is, God is calling out and he names Greece down in verse 13. You can see that. Look down in chapter 9, verse 13. We'll, we'll get there next week. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made a frame its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. I just want you to notice that 
Our God is the God of history. He rules over history. He, he declares what will happen. And it's not in just sort of vague, a great power shall arise. He's, he's nailing it. He's nailing it. Absolutely remarkable prophetic predictions of, of things that will come. This fulfillment is in 332, 333 by Alexander the Great. And this is just destruction. These cities are just being laid to waste. And you can imagine now as we move on to the next point, the discipline of the Lord, verses 5 to 7, given Tyre's reputation, Tyre's prominence that when it falls and when it falls suddenly, I mean, just imagine the contrast. Nebuchadnezzar, the most recent attempt to take it, 13-year siege failed. And Alexander just scrapes, there was an inland city, old Tyre, and he just scrapes it into the sea and builds a land bridge out. Seven months. No wonder then that Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. We see the discipline of the Lord. And, and here, the chief Philistine cities are being called out. There's five chief Philistine cities. Gath is the missing one. And most um, commentators think that the reason it had dropped out of this list and some other lists in Jeremiah is because already it had fallen into disuse. It had already was in decline. But here the four remaining chief cities of the Philistines are named. The Philistines, you remember, are the perpetual enemies of Israel. If you read through the book of Judges, they're constantly falling into the hands of the Philistines. They were pagans. And yet here, we're not going to see just the total and absolute judgment, but we're going to see discipline. And this fear and anguish spoken of here is similar language to what Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25 says, describing um, God's judgment over um, Pharaoh. To this day, I will begin to put the dread and the fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole of heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So what we're getting is the same fear and dread that fell upon the inhabitants of Canaan when Israel left Egypt and entered into the promised land. That same dread and fear is, is going to see, overcome the Philistines. Which is the fulfillment of what was said earlier in the book when God announced that he's angry at the nations who are at ease and he's going to discipline them. These people have been punishing and tormenting the Israelites for centuries, and now finally, they're going to be the ones in fear. They're the ones in confusion. And what we see is, is a judgment and a discipline, but also a cleansing and ultimate salvation. What's remarkable here is whereas to the north there's just judgment and destruction, we read this, verse 6 and verse 7, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia, and I'll take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It should be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron should be like the Jebusites. See, when God's plan here, and this is remarkable, in judgment, he's planning on restoring and saving a remnant of the Philistines. This is the part that hasn't happened yet. Even to the days of Jesus, even now, the... the those who dwell in Palestine, the, which is, they get that name from Philistine, um, are, are not at peace. They're not honored. They're not like a clan of Judah. There's still enmity there. This is a promise that we're going to look to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. 
But God has a heart not just for his people, but for the nations. We're going to see in, in Zechariah, all the nations are going to worship the Lord. And here, in a, in a remarkable outpouring of grace, God predicts that he will cleanse as well as judge the Philistines. He's going to take his blood from his mouth. The references here are to their cultic practices. They're eating of blood and, and of, of strangled foods and they're worshiping of other gods. He's going to cleanse them. He is going to remove their false religion from them. He's going to remove their vile practices from them. And then they shall be elevated to a position of honor. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. It shall be like Ekron, should be like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the former inhabitants of what became Jerusalem. And when King David took the, the stronghold of the Jebusites, yes, many of them were destroyed, but those who remained eventually sort of got swallowed up by Israel. And this is what's going to happen here. God's going to judge these nations, and some the judgment will be purely destruction. Others are going to see and they're going to fear the Lord's going to cleanse them. The Lord is going to bring some of them to faith. This is similar as we look at judgment, and, and it's not very popular today to talk about God and a God of judgment, a God of wrath, but God does many things through judgment. He, he does justice, he punishes sin, but he also works redemptive purposes in judgment. His, his destruction of Tyre, in some sense, the shock and the awe and the marvel of it, is going to mean salvation for others as they fear and tremble. It's the same thing that happened with Pharaoh. If you remember, I alluded to it when the spies go into Jericho and they meet Rahab. How did Rahab come to faith in the living God? Because of the judgment of Egypt. Listen to her account in Joshua chapter 2. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the fear of your God, the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And so you can read a story of the destruction of Pharaoh who God says, I'm raising you up. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to be, it's going to be massive, this destruction of Pharaoh. And you think, wow, that's, that's kind of harsh. Well, it is, and Pharaoh deserved it, but it's also grace because God needs to get a report of this to Rahab. And, and the, the shock and the awe, the destruction of Tyre, is going to serve as a means to a remnant, a believing remnant of Philistines who are going to come to faith and ultimately, in the period of the millennial kingdom, be elevated to positions of honor in Israel or like Israel. So the fulfillment of this, I'm sure there was fear and trembling as, as Alexander headed south, but this final prophecy about a believing remnant elevation like a clan of Judah, that, that we have to wait for. That's coming in the future, at the second coming of Christ. Finally, let's go to verse 8, the protection of the Lord. So we've seen the burden of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, and now the protection 
of the Lord. Then I shall encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. I go back to chapter 2. What's happening here in, in chapter 9, this final section, is promises that lacked specificity in the earlier part of the book are now getting fulfilled with that missing specificity. So we saw in chapter 1, verse um, 14, that God is jealous for Jerusalem, and verse 15, angry at the nations who are at ease. And we, we saw in chapter, the end of chapter 1 with the vision of the horns and the craftsmen that God will raise up people to strike down these nations, but we don't know who, we don't know when. Now it's coming into clearer focus in chapter 9. Likewise in chapter 2, look at verse 5. And I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord. I will be the glory in her midst. Look down at, at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. That's what we're seeing, this promise of God returning to his people. The, The glory had departed, Before Nebuchadnezzar came and and sacked Jerusalem in in Ezekiel, he gives us a picture of the glory, the Shekinah, the visible presence of God, leaving the Holy of Holies, exiting the temple, going down the Kidron Valley, and up to the Mount of Olives and disappearing. Which is the exact course in reverse that Jesus takes when verse 9, I'm getting ahead, that's next week, but this is the exact course in reverse that Jesus takes when he returns to the temple, when God's glory returns, albeit briefly, to the second temple. God will come and dwell with his people. And this conquest, this judgment of the nations is preparation for the Messiah coming. That's what we see, because the very next verse is the entrance of the king. And so the Lord promises that the Lord himself will dwell with Israel. He will again be with his people, God with us, Emmanuel. And that is partially fulfilled in the coming of Christ, and ultimately it will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, in the eternal state, where in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. God dwelling with his people. It will happen. It did happen in the coming of Christ, where God returns, takes possession of his Father's house. You remember Jesus making the whip, driving them out. The Lord did return to that temple. And sadly, they rejected him. They killed him. But he will come again, purifying his people. He will dwell with Israel. He did, and he will. Second, the Lord promises that the Lord himself will guard around Israel. What's also striking about Alexander the Great's conquest is after wiping out city after city after city, he strangely spares Jerusalem. And historians stumble over this. They don't know why. 
I mean, his whole point was to, to make a worldwide empire and kingdom. And after wiping out city after city after city after city, Alexander just passes by. In fact, Josephus, who's a secular um, Jew working for the Romans, recording history, has a remarkable story. One has to question its, its accuracy that through a dream given to the high priest, God protected Israel by telling the priest to put on certain clothes to go out to meet Alexander, that when Alexander saw him, Alexander, instead of attacking, he had planned on attacking Jerusalem, went up and did homage to the priest because Alexander had a similar dream. We don't know if that's what happened. What we do know is strangely, or if you have a Bible, not so strangely, Alexander passed them by, both on his southern trip down into Egypt and on his return trip back up north. So this passage predicts the destruction of their enemies all around them, and yet they will dwell in security. It's exactly what happened. I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with mine own eyes. And yet there's a sense in which this protection that God gave Israel from Alexander is just a pledge a down payment of the protection that's coming. We, we looked ahead at the Battle of Armageddon, how God will protect his people. We, we know this isn't fully fulfilled because verse 10 will elaborate on these conditions of peace, and they're global. So in verse 8, no oppressor shall march to and fro. Well, that's not true right now. No oppressor shall again march over them. And then verse 10, to make it entirely clear, we're talking about something that is yet to come. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Judah. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. The Middle East is many things. It is not a place of peace right now. But when the Christ returns, he will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so... There's a partial fulfillment of this protection seen in the remarkable preservation of Jerusalem from Alexander the Great. Not only does God predict Alexander's coming, not only does the mightiest city of their day fall quickly, but little Jerusalem, the ragtag bunch, 50,000 strong, protected. It's remarkable that Israel, as Mark Twain said, is the anvil that wore out a dozen hammers. It's this little group of people are still around, still speaking the same language on the same piece of land, and, and the Babylonians have come and gone. The Assyrians have come and gone. Medo-Persians come and gone. World empires have come and gone. Alexander the Great leaves them alone because God is sovereign over history. God himself will guard over and around Israel and see the Lord himself will watch over Israel. He says in verse 8, for now I see with my own eyes. And it's a picture that with God being present, he's present to protect. He's present to see. He's, he's aware of their plight, and he's an active guard. As, as I sang earlier from Psalm 121, God doesn't sleep, and he watches over his people. And that's what he's promising to do. There's destruction coming, and everyone's going to be terrified. And the implication is, my people, don't, don't be afraid. When you see the fall of Tyre, don't respond like the Philistines who tremble because I'm watching over you and I'm going to dwell with you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to preserve you. Which brings us to the application. And let's just sort of bridge from that point to this. God rules over and through history for his own glory. God rules over and through history for his own glory. 
You know, Christians should respond differently to world events as we read the news than non-believers. The whole point of this passage is this. There's going to be some shaking of things. There's going to be some nations rising and falling. There's going to be some, some shock and awe. But the word to Israel is don't let that shake you. God rules over and through history. Notice how in this passage, what starts out is this is going to happen, but by the time we get to verse 6, God is it's intensifying the language. God is saying he's doing it. It shifts from third-person pronouns to first-person pronouns in verse 6. I will cut off the pride of Philistia, and I will take away its blood. Well, it was Alexander the Great, wasn't it? Yes. So was it Alexander the Great who, who judged the Philistines and down Tyre, or was it God? And the answer is yes, because God is sovereign. He works in and through history so that God can say, I'm going to do it, and the way God does it is with Alexander. This is the language of the Bible. He says he raises up rulers. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, there's no authority except what is given by God, and God can use a pagan like Alexander the Great, God can use a pagan like Nebuchadnezzar, God can use a, well, I do believe Nebuchadnezzar came to faith, and God can use Pharaoh for his purposes. It doesn't make them less evil, it doesn't make them excusable for what they've done, it just means that in and through their corruption, God is still going to accomplish his purposes. And that means that we, we should read the news and watch the news a little differently. And it doesn't mean, because we believe God's sovereign, that we don't mourn over terrible things, over some of these videos that are being put on, on the internet um, of what ISIS is doing. I mean, we should mourn. We should grieve. <laughs> Hebrews says, especially when it's Christians, that we should grieve and sympathize as though it was happening to us. And yet, God's carrying on his plan. And the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. ISIS isn't going to prevail against it. World leaders, world powers aren't going to prevail against it. God rules over history, and we should take heart. There's a tension there. We see terrible things happening around us. They are terrible. the, The answer isn't to pretend that they're good. They are terrible. And yet, God's going to accomplish his plan. And God is going to judge the nations. The wrongs will be made right. If there are wrongs being done today and people seem to be getting away with it, we can be certain that judgment may tarry from passages like this, judgments are coming. And so it should give us a confidence. We shouldn't shake and tremble like a reed in the wind anytime we see something in the news. Jesus predicted this as well. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but don't let that shake you. And so there's that balance of, of grieving, and we see horrific, terrible things. We read about crimes and atrocities, and we should weep, and our hearts should break, and yet there should be a confidence that God's plan hasn't gone astray. He is accomplishing his purpose. Listen, listen to what God says in Isaiah 46. And this is, this is what sets God apart from the other so-called gods. In Isaiah 46, he's just finished mocking idols. Somebody makes them and fashions them and has to make them flat so they sit still, And in contrast to these deaf and dumb and mute idols. Remember this and stand firm. Isaiah 46, 8-13. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. 
and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now get that. God simultaneously is declaring the entire plan of human history from the beginning, and in that plan of human history, not some, not a lot, but all of God's purposes will be accomplished and stand. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God declares the end from the beginning. God accomplishes his purpose. In the New Testament, we, we get verses like Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not a lot of things, not most things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, or Ephesians 1, 11, God is working all things in accordance with his plan. History is his story, and he rules over and through it. You can't escape this point from this section of the book, calling with such specificity, such accuracy, the things that are coming. And he intends to get glory from it. He intends to to get reverence from it. He intends for the Philistines to see this and get terrified, and a remnant of them getting converted. He intends for his people to be comforted by it. He has a purpose in ruling over history. And the purpose is his glory and the comfort and conversion of his people. There's a second point we can get from this, though, and that is that no one can escape from his judgment and wrath. No one can escape from his judgment and wrath. I I submit to you that nobody in that day felt more secure, more safe than the Tyrians. They had successfully outlived the Siege of Shalmaneser and of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who brought most of the world, Nebuchadnezzar, who brought most of the world to its knees, did not bring Tyre to its knees. And yet, when God wants to strike someone down, when God wants to bring someone to judgment, they get judged. Tyre was destroyed, wiped out. And we get from that that if God can do that to Tyre, he can certainly do that to any power today or any person today. There's judgment coming, not just for really bad, evil world powers, but for each and every one of us. For everyone who sinned, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. The book of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. Not a very popular doctrine today, People, if they do believe there is a God, are convinced if he, there is a God, well, certainly he's a loving God. And that's true as far as it goes. But he's also a righteous and just God. Jesus tells the story of the rich fool who had a good harvest and he builds barns and he sits back and he takes his ease and he feels secure. And that very night your soul will be accounted for you, Jesus said. There's not one of us who doesn't know whether or not driving home Some car might drift into our lane. We don't know if we'll be alive in three seconds. And we cannot escape his judgment and wrath. We cannot escape his judgment and wrath. The book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Every one of us will face God. And either you will have to deal with your own sins, which you will not be able to deal with, and eternity in hell will not deal with all of your sins. Or you will appear before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He is the way to escape the wrath to come. Brings us to point three. Learn from his judgment on sin and repent and be saved. Learn from his judgment on sin and repent and be saved. See, there's some who are being judged in this passage who just get wiped out. That's it. That's the end of their story. And yet there's this remnant of people who they see and they fear and they tremble. And, and they, they repent. We know they repent because their vile practices are removed. The blood from their mouth is gone. Their abominable practices are brought to an end. You know, Jesus, in his day, there's a natural catastrophe. A tower in Siloam fell, killing many Israelites. And, and the Jews came to him, and they wanted to know what to make of this. And in their theology, well, was there one really bad guy who did something really bad there? What did they do to bring this upon themselves? You know what Jesus' answer was? Repent, or you too will likewise perish. When we see things like this, there's a wisdom that learns from the judgment of others. There's a wisdom that learns from seeing God judge sin in others, lest he do it to us. And the the wise course is to flee and trust in Christ while we're able to. Every one of us has not gotten what we deserve. Every one of us, to some degree or another, is a recipient of lavish grace. I know that because you're alive and you're not in hell right now. Perfect justice would not only punish all sin, it would punish all sin now. So we're all recipients of lavish grace that we do not deserve. And, And we see around us death reigning. Every person who's lived thus far in the world, except those who are alive now, has died. It's 10 out of 10, it's going to happen. Um, except for one or two notable exceptions um, in, in the Bible. And, and, and God has offered salvation, protection from the wrath to come. In his son, on the cross, Jesus absorbed God's wrath. On, on the cross, Jesus was judged. The judgment that is coming is all of our sins will be judged, either in us or in Christ. And on the cross, Christ takes upon himself our sin, and he is judged. He receives God's judgment. And then he calls us, whoever comes to him, he won't turn away. Whoever believes in him will be saved. Whoever turns to him will, will be forgiven and pardoned. And, and so here, we, we see that theme that even God's judgment is meant to, to bring the gospel to others. Like Rahab, who hearing of what God did to Pharaoh, said, then I better, I better switch sides. I I want to be on his team. I want him to be my God. Learn from his judgment on sin 
and repent and be saved. And finally, for those who do know him, for those who are his children, for those who have put their faith in Jesus, trust and rejoice in his presence, protection, and peace. And that was, that was the good word for Israel. All this stuff is going to happen around them, and yet God would dwell with them. And for those who know the Lord, he dwells with you now. His spirit lives in you. He, he is dwelling with you and in you. His presence, his spirit testifying with our spirit that we are sons of God. A spirit of adoption that allows us to cry, Abba, Father. And God protects his people. He protects us. The spirit intercedes for us. The Son is interceding for us. The Father is, is, is watching over us, calling, causing all things to work for our good. And God gives us peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. This is true for them in a, in a geopolitical sense, and it's true for us spiritually. And it should be our great joy and delight. And, and again, the danger is that we get so caught up in watching what's going on in the world around us, and it's, it's important to be engaged. It's important to care. But sometimes we can be so shaken up by what's going on what political measures are passing or not passing, that it can eclipse our joy and our trust and our peace in God. Whatever happens to the world around us, if, if you're in Christ, God is at peace with you and he's dwelling in you and, and he's called you his son and his daughter and, and that should always be present even as we get discouraged looking at current events. Trust and rejoice You know God. Let that be your boast. Let him who boasts not boast in his strength or his wisdom or his riches, but that he knows me, says the Lord. That's the lesson to learn. Now, next week, we'll see how all this prepares the way for the coming of God incarnate, God in the flesh. Let's let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the grace that we have received, knowing that your patience according to Romans, is is meant to bring us to repentance. It's meant to give us time to think and come to our senses and place our trust in you. And so, Lord, we just pray that that you would do that for any who who do not know you. That this morning might be a time where they place their trust in you. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, we, we just pray that you would give us that confidence and that peace as we do live in a very uncertain time in the world. And as we see see things that dismay us, and rightly so, that our hope would not be shaken, our confidence would not be shaken, and our joy would not be shaken, even as we grieve and mourn over sin in the world. And Lord, let us not forget to grieve and mourn over our own sin and deal with that as well. Lord God, we wait for you to come to judge the nations, to bring in a righteous kingdom, to put an end to sin and to misery. Until then, Lord, would that we would rightly honor your name as the people called by your name, that we would act accordingly, being holy as you are holy. Lord Jesus, comes quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.